You're listening to the Per Service Podcast, episode number six. Welcome, Bach, to the Per Service Podcast. <laughs> I can't. I can't even do it. Okay, I'll do it for real now. Hello and welcome to the Per Service Podcast. This is the show about life in the performing arts. And we are digging through life's persistent questions to help musicians and artists figure out what they're working towards or why they really want a career or a life in the arts. Today, we're talking about persisting when you don't have the motivation to keep going. And in the second half of the show, we get into a great topic about deciding what you're actually committed to. And we get into these topics by looking closer at Anna Luce's story. This is the third of four episodes where we dig a little deeper into who we are, and today is her story. Anna's whole story about her family moving a lot while growing up, finding new teachers, and her battle with chronic illness is really inspiring, and if anyone knows a thing or two about practicing when you don't feel like it, it's her. So I know you're going to get a lot out of our conversation today. You can listen to my story in episode four or Christian Marshall's story in episode five, and you can see all the links and stories that we mentioned in this episode in the show notes online at perservice.co slash six, like the number. And we'll introduce Anna more in depth, obviously, in a minute, but your other co-hosts are, if we were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Anna Luce, she'd be Raphael, fierce, slightly sarcastic, and often delivers deadpan humor. Also, sometimes has a very pronounced New York accent. Christian Marshall, he'd be Leonardo, the brainiest of the bunch, and has the unique ability to figure out how things work. Michael O'Giblin, that's me. I'd be Donatello, the inventor, engineer, and technological genius. Well, that might be a stretch. And Jessica Wiersma, she'd be Michelangelo, a free-spirited, relaxed, and practical joker. Also has a strong love of pizza. I'll have to confirm that with her, but I mean, come on, who doesn't love pizza? All right, well, I'll be back at the end of the episode. Let's get to it. We can start with a little interview. Yeah, something that might be fun. Mm -hmm. So today, we're going to talk a little bit more in depth with our violinist or one of our violinists on board, I should say, Anna Luce. Well, first of all, when did you start playing violin? How old were you? <laughs> I was six. You were six. Suzuki or? or... Uh, Suzuki Light, I'm going to call it. It was influenced ah. by Suzuki, use of the books, but a slightly different method. Mm-hmm. So no like oh, rice box and ruler or? <laughs> well, I kind of started up with my own version of a rice box. Because Kleenex? my sisters, yeah, Kleenex box. A <laughs> um, cigar box. No, my both of my sisters played instruments, but they were there was a pretty big age gap. So they were in middle school and high school when I was like three, and I would bro- watch them practice, and I would think, hmm, I want to do that, and I would go climb up on the stool and get this little folk art violin off of the wall, and <laughs> grab a ruler, slap the violin on my left shoulder, <laughs> oh. <laughs> air violin. And awesome. mom was like, oh, I guess we should get this girl some lessons. That's awesome. Um, so, but I, wow. I went straight to just violin after okay. my, my folk art violin air, air bowing days. Okay. So what, what is one word you would use to describe Anna Luce, the six-year-old violinist? Ooh, eager. Eager. <laughs> oh. Nice. I have my first practice at home after my first lesson. 
And I was like giddy with excitement. I put both of my feet on like the paper bag that was outlined where the feet were supposed to go, screeching away like a dying cat. Yeah, loved it. <laughs> That's awesome. So that is so great. And did you always like it? Mm-hmm. I just I didn't want to play violin for so many years. I just like you know never practiced. But I'm always surprised by kids that are like. Yeah, so gung-ho about it. I got to tell you, the one thing that motivated me from the beginning was the fact that at the beginning of each school day, I was enrolled in a Christian school, and I got to miss the first 30 minutes of class by being in the String Bean Symphony. Ooh. I think we were called, I think they were called the String Beans. <laughs> string Beans. Were you called the String Beans? Yeah, because we all play the violin and those strings. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and I remember my good little friend growing up who just knows um, Sarah Claire. She was like, I want to miss school too. So she started the violin. <laughs> there are a lot no of perks way. to so, you can get out of a lot of classes. Now, did you, some people start learning from a great teacher, but then, you know, others sometimes, you know, kind of have their starter teacher. And then when they show some talent or maybe later middle school, high school, they move on to like the re- the first real teacher, maybe the first real right. artist or like pre-college okay. program somewhere. Mm. So how old were you when you went to that sort of teacher? Well, I actually, I had basically a teacher every two years. So I started with okay. this one really great teacher who is who my mom was already acquainted with. And actually, it's funny, in our small town of Winter Haven, Florida, Ooh. she and her husband were like the string quartet gig group. But she had a great little group of twinklers and like everyone knew her in our town. So I started with her, but about two and a half years later, we moved to Maryland where I studied with a teacher who is not so great. She would roll the Suzuki die, I think I told you guys, and be like, play this song next week. And at that point, I was good at sight reading. So I would just go home and pr- play all the books in the Suzuki book I was working on at the time and then come back and she just picked one and that's how our half an hour went. That's About two and a half years after what? that. Early chance music. Uh, yeah, it's not good. It's really not good. But yeah, basically... So two and a half years after being with that lady, we went back to Florida and I studied with a very unstable violin teacher who I think was going through a rough divorce and was kind of a hot mess. And about two years after her, I moved to a a really amazing teacher at University of South Florida. I would say she was my first real big time teacher. Was was her name Carolyn? Stewart? Um, No, get out. (laughs) Yes. She's so great. Out of like all the crazy violin teachers in the world, you're like, oh, I know exactly the one you're talking about. She's great. Oh, no. How do you know her? I I studied with Carolyn Hubel for my last year of high school. She's a professor at Vanderbilt. She'd just Uh come to Vanderbilt from Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. And when I was thinking about schools to go to, she was like, if you want to go back to Florida, because she knew I was from Miami, she was like, consider Carolyn Stewart at USF. She's like, how a woman with so small of hands can play the violin so amazingly is still beyond me. She goes, but she is a one fine violinist. Oh, I'm sorry. She, she was the good is. violinist. She wasn't the crazy violinist. Yeah, she, no, she was not the unstable one. She was oh, the okay, very yeah. stable one. Who I'm sorry. My apologies. Definitely motivated me. Oh, so um, cool. Yeah, ah. she was great. And also her husband was great. I took piano lessons with him because I realized I was behind the times. At a certain point, my mom was like, eh, I really should have started doing piano first so you could have a theory background. And I was like, yeah, what's theory? Oh, man. Theory one, like undergrad, yeah. first class. Mm-hmm. I, wish I, <laughs> I wish I knew more piano. <laughs> Definitely. Anyways. Yeah, so Carolyn was a major influence in helping me realize what potential I had because teachers before that would be like, hey, you're quote unquote talented, which basically meant I could play really fast and I could read music. So I thought it was golden. (laughs) And a lot of teachers are lazy and 
would roll with that and not really work on motivating a student. They'd be like, oh, you can play and you, you play kind of in tune. Cool. How old were you when you went to her? At this point, probably, let's say 12 or 13. Ah, okay. Wow. Okay, young. But say after you studied with her for one year, do you have a word to describe that Anna Luce violinist? Christian. Okay. Wow. Um, okay, there might be a pattern here. <laughs> well, I would say, <laughs> hmm, it's hard to sum up, sum up in one word. Yeah, right. I'll let what? you have three. Maybe well, a phrase. It's going to be a yeah. ooh, run on a conjunction. Or... Played too fast. <laughs> I would say flashy. Like I could play all of the flashy business, but flashy I had absolutely flash. no self-control. So okay. at this point in my life, I'm really enjoying things. I'm trucking along, having a great time at the Tampa Bay Youth Orchestra, which is where I met a, a mutual friend of all of ours, Bobby Nicholson. No way. <laughs> uh, but at the ripe old age of 15, my dad had a career change and moved us to Delaware. <laughs> Delaware. Needless to say, as a 15-year-old, that's pretty traumatic um ah you just like never saw the, the sun ever again oh, <laughs> kind of how it felt and thanks to carolyn who still cared about me even after i moved midway through my like i don't know what what how old are you in fi- when when you're 15, 15 like 10th grade like, you're 15 when you're 15 sophomore <laughs> here which grade are of high school yeah anyway the point is what? <laughs> that summer, Carolyn was so nice to me and she had me go to Killington Music Festival. And that like really solidified my intense music experience times. And I had briefly studied with a guy in Baltimore because in Delaware, there's like either you drive to Philly, which is like two hours, or maybe you're lucky and go the other direction in Annapolis, which is like an hour. And my mom, who is so awesome drove me an hour and a half to Peabody prep two or three times a week for basically all of high school because she wasn't going to let a new driver (laughs) out on her own in Baltimore. So you did, so you did violin and orchestra at Peabody prep or what was that like? And, And so at Peabody prep, I had this incredible teacher who Jess knows and we had an interesting group of, um, only girls actually. (laughs) We called them the harem. Just want to throw that one out there. Well, just yeah. like statistically, it seems like, I mean, there are kind of more girl violinists than guys. Anyways, I remember one semester at when I was at Carnegie Mellon, for some reason, right. I was the only guy in the entire violin section. In college? In college, it is surprising, though, I will say. That is weird. Yeah, it was crazy. So ba- basically, let me just, I'm sorry, this is getting a little wordy, I would say. In those Peabody prep years, this teacher is definitely the one who helped me realize I wanted to go into music as a living. Um, I remember in particular there being one instance where he had a couple of us listen to the more and more recording of the Chacon. And if you haven't heard that, you should check it out because it's gorgeous. Wait, who's recording? Sorry. Is it the Hilliard Ensemble, Jess? Ah, Yeah, it's Hilliard Ensemble. The album is called Morimer. Morimer. And it's, it's devastatingly amazing. Is this where uh, it's sung? Right. Yeah, there's a there's a line sung over right, it. Yeah, right. There's a line sung over it. That's yeah. it. Right. It's it's Whoa. with words. I don't. You know, I, I think know. like he took lines from Bach cantata. Yeah, he took lines from cantata. Bach shako. Shako. Michael, have you even heard this? Head, You've like, got to put a link to it. For the podcast listeners, because it's seriously a brilliant recording. And I don't know, it's just amazing. And I remember listening to that in this like old tattered couch in one of the 
Peabody Studios because that's what they're known for is these spacious studios with tattered couches. I remember like listening with my eyes closed and it just being like this experience that made me realize that like this was for me. Symphonietta, there's this incredible conductor, and he was also so encouraging. So basically, had Christian's cracking up and being a doofus, I might so, add. Sorry, <laughs> he was having an experience um, over there. Was having an experience. Cone experience. <laughs> was there was there um, something else? Maybe if you didn't go into music, what would you have done? Oh, let me tell you. Yeah. Up until the age of probably 14, I either wanted to be a Supreme Court judge or an <laughs> undercover. And <laughs> uh, I was, guys, I was homeschooled from sixth grade on. So I was really into the idea of law and I wanted to go into law and I did debate. Oh. Did Lincoln Douglas debate? Lincoln Douglas. Which is super oh, boring because you're by yourself. <laughs> Are you debating yourself? Uh, no. Nope. Like stand on one side of the room and like state your argument and then like run yeah. to the other side. Yeah, that's like, like what I'm picturing. Your hair and be that like, no. That's kind of what it is because you do have to know both sides. So, uh. well, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> Wait, so you wanted to do Supreme Court just, or or my more exciting plan that I formulated in the Tampa Bay Youth Orchestra was to possibly be an undercover FBI agent in an orchestra that, and have a violin that was a gun. Ooh. So if I need to take someone out mid-tune... Oh, yes. You could. could. Anyway. Oh, that's that's nice. I listened to the Chacon and all of those dreams were wiped away. I think we should bring back some of those dreams. But <laughs> ah, Yeah, actually, it might be time. I was going to say, you could actually pursue both. <laughs> it's not too late. There's a uh, Supreme Court justice opening right now. It's not too late. It's too late. And I think it's I think it's so great that cooking and baking is one of your big hobbies because Julia Child is rumored to have been a spy. Oh, that's right. You know what? Or was Wait, wasn't what? her or her husband oh, yeah. was like yeah. a spy? Or... Her husband definitely was basically a spy. Yeah, definitely. Some basically, people think she was as well. She could have been. It's I, a great you cover. Know what, Christian, I think so. Mm-hmm. Everyone Child. should read My Life in France, Memoirs of Julia Child. Mm-hmm. I'm working on the sequel. I just watched the movie uh, Julie and Julia. Michael, it's not. I'm one of. The, I, I'm just one of those people that's like, I don't have time to read the book. I'll just go watch the movie. Well, the thing that's sad about so. that film is that it's not. It's not an accurate portrayal of what happened in real life. Sure. Yeah. No, I think I've heard that. But it also makes you really hungry, and so. Well, yes. Make sure you have food if you're watching that. I, I just wanted to say I was working on the sequel, My Life in Austria, My Life uh-huh. as an Orchestral Spy. Um, oh. If anyone was interested, Guys, I now it'll be, be available spy. after I die. But anyway, <laughs> posthumously <laughs> released. Yep. What if we were all undercover? Um. So. Well, then we wouldn't mm. be having this podcast. That's true. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. That's what we're saying. That's what I'm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Anna is obviously, video. but she's obviously not a spy. I'm she's not a obviously spy. a violinist living it up in New York. So, what did you do after mm-hmm. Peabody Prep? 
Where'd you go? What'd you do? Okay. So basically I was set up to, you know, go to a conservatory like most kids who are motivated. That's usually the path that one takes. Oh, I sense Um, a lot coming on. But (laughs) Mm. um, I don't know exactly what happened. My parents don't have a musical background. They, They knew that I like had some skills and wanted to be supportive of me moving on in music. They're very proud of me for that, which I can be really grateful for. However, there wasn't a ton of guidance or a ton of motivation on my part for some reason towards certain schools. And I think even though Peabody Prep was a great experience for me, having made that hard move in like ninth grade, it kind of, it messed me up as a kid. I had a great experience, but like certain life situations definitely led me to not apply to as many schools as I think I I should have. So I got into Peabody and and NEC, but not with enough money because I really enjoyed studying with James Buswell and I think Jess did too back in the day. And I could have gone to a school that James Buswell taught at for two years and then transferred to NEC and tried to make it work out financially. But I remember it just being this thing. My parents were like, well, do you want to be signed up for this much debt this young in your life? And I was like, that sounds pretty scary. So the last minute I went and played for the teacher at University of Delaware that has a really small music program. And I ended up going there for four years because it was a wise financial decision. And I had experiences there that I would not have had at conservatory. And I can definitely be grateful for that time. But of course, as like a young person, you're like, well, I play the violin. I'm per- I'm a performance major, but I went to this really small school. You know, you're kind of embarrassed about it. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. <clears throat> because you have all these big dreams and you know yeah. oh yeah can you walk us cuz cuz there's probably some people listening that are probably in sort of that uh mode where they're getting ready for college auditions and how does it kind of can you walk us through sort of like when you apply and waiting to hear back from like scholarship you know yeah, results so- I, I, if I remember correctly, you guys tell me if I'm wrong, but you apply by December 1st usually. And if there's a pre-screen round, you're sending in recordings by that date. And you know when you have an audition, it's usually in February or March. And then you hear those results, sometimes not even until the 1st of April. And you usually have to decide by tax day, April 15th, right? I, don't, see, I, I feel like it's always like, no. April 15th, let us know. <laughs> or maybe so, that, yeah, I don't know. It was a long time yeah. ago. And I will say if you're in the process of applying currently and you do not get favorable scholarship results, you should always ask the teacher that you've been accepted with if you can have more scholarship. Never be afraid to be the greasy wheel because Mm. greasy, squeaky, squeaky wheel. (laughs) Be that greasy wheel, man. Uh, No, but if you're the squeaky wheel, you'll soon be greasy. (laughs) I feel feel like the, the greasy wheel is like... Hey, uh, you want to buy a bow? I got a, you know, I, I got a bow in this case. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's, it's a tort, really, but it just doesn't have the stamp on it. So uh, <laughs> I'm a greasy wheel here. That's my real life bow situation, by the way. Uh, yeah, but I would say always, if you don't have favorable answers to your audition, um, for your audition results, always inquire about extra scholarship, etc. Yeah. Follow up. Because sometimes they, yeah, they can, they got some reserve around that they don't, they don't tell you about or they really want you mm-hmm. or yeah. they didn't get the numbers they thought they were going to get. And so now they. Right. And then sometimes, exactly. Sometimes they offer a scholarship to somebody, maybe some more money. And then those two people decide not to go to that school. And then technically, you know, those $60,000 aren't going to be used. Maybe they mm-hmm. can't come to you. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Oh, man. 
Facts. We're just full of good advice today. We're just, we just, we're just, yeah, nailing. Us, just nailing it. <laughs> um, I will say that the theme of my story, I think, as a musician, has been persistence without motivation. And I can give you several instances of that. But obviously, you know, the moves in high school and or not being able to go to conservatory, these are all things that, you know, the initial motivation of loving music was there and established. But life circumstances have always gotten in the way. And I think it's true for everyone. So, you know, I'm talking about my specific story, but I'm sure that everyone can relate yeah, of course, to I totally relate having to a plan yeah. and your plan getting messed up. <laughs> yeah. You said persistence without motivation or is it like without validation or somehow you kept going? What I mean when I say persistence without motivation is that I've had to continue in persistence and conjure up a form of motivation, even if the circumstances are bogging me down. Yeah. You know, every year, every two years for me, something big happens that gets in the way of my plans as a musician. And I could choose to walk away. Mm -hmm. It's like I can't let go of it. But even when I'm not feeling motivated, I have to keep going. It's like persisting, even if the motivation is not there, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Because sometimes you the music like on its own is not enough. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But like, so you're saying like when circumstances have dictated that you haven't been able to do what your original motivation was, you've had to figure out a way to keep quote unquote motivated to right. like stay on top of the game. Yeah. And so that, you know, that theme, obviously, I'm sure for you guys too, continued after school because that's a big time in everyone's life where you made, you've made it through school, you've survived, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And... <laughs> And then what? In my school experience, you know, I didn't go to conservatory. I was at a university. And actually, my first year at university, I was diagnosed with a, an autoimmune disease that is chronic. And that definitely mm -hmm. set me back. But it did it ever, it's like stopped you from playing for yeah. a period of time? Or? Yeah. So I, I made it. I'm not sure how. I honestly, my whole freshman year, I just thought I was dying. <laughs> I must be dying. And I was just like, well, I don't feel well. <laughs> I'm just going to try to get to May and the symptoms that I had, like you would have thought you were dying as well. And I was just like, well, and it, and it, it <laughs> it's one of those things. And also when you're a kid, you're just like, this is really scary as crap. And, and yeah. al you almost like don't want to know what it is because you think you're dying. Um, wow. it's basically not a great place to be put in your freshman year of college. Wow. And that year my dad had a brain tumor, which nearly killed him. So it was a very exciting year. And luckily I didn't have to take off any school, which a lot of people with this condition have had to do. But I, I got back on the horse after the summer of, mm -hmm. of recuperating and, and did pretty well through the last three years of undergrad. And then after that, I, I actually took a year off in between undergrad and grad school. Like you, Michael, you mentioned you took a year off yeah. and like your first round of grad school auditions, you bombed. I did the same yeah. thing. Oh yeah. It was just, yep. it was just all too much for me with like. So did you audition for grad school during your senior year of college? I did. Yeah. Oh, you did. Mm -hmm. Okay. I did. I took a few auditions and I wasn't in a great place mentally. It had been a rough year. I had, I was in like a bad relationship. And I was like doing senior recital stuff. It was just like a messy year for me as a human. Mm. And yeah. <laughs> so I barely made it through those grad school auditions. And then I was like, well, that didn't go well. That wasn't cute. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it's not that I didn't, like I got into a few places, but it just didn't feel right. And I just like, I don't know. Yeah. It wasn't good. And so I, I took that whole next year off and, 
you know, did some competitions and got my playing in order. It was really nice to not have to be in an academic setting. Yeah. And I lived at home, which I was a little embarrassed about as, you know, we all know the drill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but then I auditioned for grad school again. Actually, Jess and I got to take a few auditions together. It was cute. You did. For, for grad schools? Yeah. yeah did for you grad guys school? know okay. that Voldemort and Mordor built a music school together? Don't say it, though. You can't talk about it. I thought, what, you mean like it shall not be named? The, I yeah, think no, like, the teacher we, we were auditioning for, let's let's just add, the teacher, teacher we were auditioning for is amazing. But the, the actual facility that we went to for this audition was like, like Mordor. We drove we drove up and we were, I was like, I didn't know Voldemort and Mordor built a music school. I like how you're like Voldemort and Mordor. That's hysterical. I know. <laughs> just like it doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> But I remember specifically. Can you give us some sort of uh, idea of um, yes, Christian, uh, where this school Christian guest? It was, oh, it I'm was so a jealous. New York I'm... school. Oh yeah, I got it. Wait, anyway, oh, there's yeah. basically no windows in the school. It's yeah, very it looks scary. Like a jail. Purchased them yet? Yes. <laughs> nice. Anyway, um, <laughs> we had we had a fun time though. That year off was great because Jess and I got to hang out a lot and practice and be silly. So you know, as, when you take auditions, when or when you're about to, you sometimes go and meet teachers at the school mm-hmm. and have lessons with them to see like if you would work well together. Yeah, which is a great idea. I didn't do that some some of the times, and it has a very yeah. direct correlation to how the audition goes. It sure does. But so we went and took lessons with um, James Buswell. Mm-hmm. And when you take lessons with him, you like commit to basically like a two hour period at least. Wow. During my lesson, somebody else, like another student is observing. Mm-hmm. And then during that student's lesson, I'm observing. And so that's what Anna and I did. Ah, tag team. Basically, we left the lessons and we were like, if we combined our two playing skills, like, or, like you know, yeah. how we both play. We would be the best violinist in the world. You do the left hand, I'll do the right hand. Yeah. You guys should have auditioned as a duo playing the Bach double. Oh, and then we, everyone would have noticed her strengths yeah. as a whole. You could, no, what you should have done, <laughs> what you should have done is sewn, no, 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 gotten some homeschooling child to like <laughs> sew you oh, no. like a denim dress <laughs> that's like connected at the hip and then oh, pass yourselves no. off as conjoined twins. With some like uh, fruit patches on the vest also. And, like, and then like play the top on the bottom. This is so rock. We can say it because so we're homeschoolers and we lived it. So. Um, Anyway, and also we can say it because Michael just can edit this out. Her hair, <laughs> I know, I'm except recording. I'm not. <laughs> Everything's going uh, to crap. That's it. She's drinking a giant cup of gin because it's uh, nighttime there. I'm on just my set. Yeah. Your hair. Six oh hours God. ahead. This is actually yeah, the one of our later times. I need to. I like it I'm though. Start drinking We're a little soon, more yeah. on top of things. Yeah, I think the last ones we've just been recording in the morning. I'm just like barely awake and yeah. That's probably why they're so boring. Just kidding. They've been really great. No, that last one was phenomenal. No, yeah. yours was oh, great, yeah. Michael. Michael, that oh, was Michael. such... I'm not kidding. That was no, such No, it was episode. so good. If you need... You can go back and listen. That's episode four, I believe, is a... Uh, Perservice.co slash four is the one about me. And Mind you, about Christian and I stuff. are not saying that we were so good. It's just that Michael has some great editing skills. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I, you know, I, try to, I try to keep it exciting. Okay, since we got a little off topic, I'm going to interrupt here so we can hear a quick word from our sponsors, and then we'll get back to it. 
The Peer Service blog and podcast is made possible by orchestraexcerpts.com, the website that I created to help instrumentalists prepare excerpts for orchestra auditions. If you're preparing for an audition, orchestraexcerpts.com makes it easy to listen to multiple recordings of excerpts and follow along with the sheet music on screen in one convenient place. You can also purchase excerpt collections, either clean practice parts or ones edited with bowings and fingerings and many other resources. Whether it's for a summer festival, a youth orchestra, your school's seating audition, or for the Cleveland Orchestra, you can find and listen to those excerpts at orchestraexcerpts.com. Today's podcast is also brought to you by audible.com, where you can get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash perservice. They have over 180,000 programs to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. The book that Anna recommended earlier was My Life in France, The Memoir of Julia Child. Some writers find that the more they learn about their co-authors, the less they like them. But I had the opposite experience. The more I learned about Julia Child, the more I came to respect her. What impressed me most was how hard she worked, how devoted she was to the rules of la cuisine française while keeping herself open to creative exploration, and how determined she was to persevere in the face of setbacks. Julia never lost her sense of wonder and inquisitiveness. She was, and is, a great inspiration. Man, I want to listen to that right now, but you should probably wait until you're done with this podcast, right? Well, to get this free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash perservice. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com slash perservice to get this free audiobook. All right, let's get back to it. I think that year after your undergrad, if you don't go on to master's right away, is a really big like gut check to kind of see, okay, Absolutely. I'd really decide, is this really what I want to do? Or oh. I'm not sure I recommend it. No, I don't either. I think it's really hard. If you're going to take a year off, it might end up being good for you. But I think that staying motivated during that year is going to be really tricky. So just yeah. throw that into the persistence without motivation theme for my life. Because if I had a lot of performances set up for that year and different competitions mm-hmm. and auditions that I already knew I was going to take and trips planned to have lessons, and if I would not have done that, I think that I would have never gone to grad school. Yeah, mm. and I and I think it's it's really easy also for that like one year to turn into two years, and then it does get hard. It kind of gets yes. increasingly harder to make yourself go back to school especially if you start working and making money and then you're like wait if I'm gonna go back to school I'm probably not gonna be making anything and having to like write papers and stuff oh that was like really hard about going back but I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate for a second I think that that year off in between I think it actually can be healthy for some things like for example we always talk about wanting to avoid mindless practicing not oh, wanting yeah. to just saw yeah. away at an instrument. But isn't there also mindless studying going to grad school when you're not mentally ready for it? Oh, or like sure. even going through undergrad, like, you know, seasons of undergrad where you're not really mentally present. Like you're going through the motions, you might be getting good grades, playing concerts or recitals, but you're not actually aware of what you're learning or what you're applying. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you need a year in between undergrad and grad school, 
to let yourself catch up mentally so you can go through grad school very aware of what you're studying. Like if it's a real conscious choice, like I've had this, you know, gut check and I'm choosing to now go through grad school and I'm going to apply what I learn and really try to get better. I think you're way better off than to rush into it and be like, oh, I just, okay, just, I, I think I should stay motivated and just do it without really having decided this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You can go lesson to lesson and have that motivation just because of the fact that you know that you have a lesson, you know, next week. And so you have to practice. But if you're kind of, I mean, you can just play well enough that your teacher is happy. And if you have a nice teacher that's not really going to scare you into practicing, you might not be pushing yourself. You might not be, you know, getting the most out of your time there. And you can just kind of coast through a degree and not really gotten the most out of it or really, you know, been like mindfully aware of what you were doing. Sure. And I, I even experienced that going into grad school after having taken a year off because I got married and went to grad school the next day, basically. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened, actually. That's actually yeah. a real story and literal. It's a little sad. But, you guys uh, had like a honeymoon later. Though. Uh, Yes, we did. Six months later, but I had altitude sickness the whole time. It was great. <laughs> My life was off to a great start. Uh, um, essentially... Well, and here, here's a thing, too, to throw uh-huh. into the story of my life pile. Um, <laughs> here's your life, that's a pile. Uh, so I ended up marrying a violist that we all know and who I met at this festival <laughs> that we all met each other at. Uh-huh. Sometimes we call it marriage works, which I really reject. But and I, I and when I went do. to the when I went to the festival the, the first summer I was like disgusting people from here get married I hate that I was like I'm never doing <laughs> never. that and then I did yeah boys are and gross. you did it Ugh. a year later that's what I also well was. two hey give me some credit it was two years later nope I will give you no credit okay well the next year I started dating Greg and then the year after that we got married so we just like we're moving right along here people and so you guys got married and started a masters. Yeah, and because he's a musician, we that's the reason why we had to get married the day before school started, essentially. <laughs> In fact, to be specific, I went the week before our wedding and took grad school testing and we found an apartment and like went to Ikea and put a bed in it and then came back, <laughs> got married, drove back put to Texas. Four days after my wedding, I took the Austin Symphony audition and by some miracle of God, I advanced... <laughs> Because I had wow. definitely not been practicing my excerpts for the couple of weeks prior. Um, just such an interesting whirlwind experience. So, and obviously starting in a new town and with a new person living in your home and being married to, yeah. who's also a musician, you don't think that that's necessarily setting you up for a good grad school experience to focus on your studies and, and your a, practicing. But a l- lot of life changes right there. It sure is. But because he's super involved with this quartet, I had a lot of time on my hands to practice. And you know how grad school is. You don't all, you know, you don't necessarily make a ton of friends in grad school. It's not anything like undergrad as far as community goes usually. That is for sure. I had a lot of time to focus and it was actually really good after having that year off, um, which wasn't really a year off because I was planning wedding and being a crazy person. Greg started like, like the quartet master's program. And you started just a violin performance master's? Yeah, I think he was their like first artist diploma student 
ever at UT Austin, which is funny because he already had a master's and didn't need another one. Oh. Uh, yeah, so I got my master's there and then we moved to the D.C. area shortly after. And that was when I was thrown into life after school. And I was a little bit on my own because the quartet was picking up and they were at a doctoral program at Maryland and they were gone all of the time. And I thought, wow, mm-hmm. what am I doing with my life? And yeah. that's when I joined a conductorless chamber orchestra that I'm still a part of. And that's when I picked up Baroque violin, actually. I think there were probably two major moments in my life where I was solely driven by motivation of music. One was with that teacher in high school and just really like creating a love for the the old soloists like David Oistrakh and Yasha Haifas. I was so inspired by them. Oistrakh is my musical grandfather. He was my teacher's teacher. I love it. Yeah, he's the yeah. man. Yeah, and that's how it was for me at prep and like hearing stories about him firsthand from someone who had been around him. Just like it's a it's a beautiful thing and I think necessary for every musician to have that experience where you're inspired by people who have gone before you. And then I will say I realized later that the moments that stuck out to me were the Bach Chacon thing that I've told you about. And I remember playing for Ellen de Pasquale at like La Folia when I was like 11 or something. Mm -hmm. And all of these pieces that I really loved were all early music pieces. And I was able to take some time to set apart thanks to a really kind professor who runs BPI, which is the Baroque Performance Institute, that's what it stands for, right? At Oberlin, I was able to go there and start up this mm-hmm. new venture in my life. I, I could see how like the Baroque Chacon experience really influenced your love for Baroque music. What else about it? Because I don't know. I, I mean, I never really caught the Baroque bug. You didn't drink the Kool-Aid, Michael? That's, a, that, that's what we no, call it. We that's, call it drinking the Kool-Aid. That sounds kind of terrible. It sounds like you get some some like bubonic plague or something, the Baroque <laughs> bug or something. It sounds like you'll get something, you get something nasty, man. They get some Zika from that. Well, because you're not just into Baroque <laughs> oh, music, no. you're into the historical performance aspects. So like on the oh, yeah. Sorry. real Baroque violins and the strings, and the tuning and all using that. them using them funny bows right. and like four twelve or something. The the first time that I decided to play something that wasn't just straight up regular violin, I actually put the Leonardo Sonata, which is a really great piece. You should check it out, even mm-hmm. if you're a modern instrumentalist. Um, because she was a lady. He's she's a lady. Leonardo. Oh, she's yeah. a lady. International Women's Day. On That's right. Day. And she worked at a nunnery. I played the Leonardo Sonata on my grad recital on modern violin at 440, but with a Baroque bow because I wanted to understand, just wanted to like dabble a little bit. And that's usually how most people get their start. They're like, I'm going to try on a Baroque bow and see where this thing takes me. Mm -hmm. So after playing that piece of music and getting to know this person that was super helpful in the D.C. area, I decided to make a Baroque violin purchase and get into all of that. Mm -hmm. And I've really been enjoying it. And right now I'm at the place in my life where I'm trying to balance modern versus broke, which is actually really hard to swap back and forth. I just have to hope that one week I'm doing one thing and the next week I'm doing something else so I can keep my brain straight. Mm -hmm. And here's my question, which is a little cynical. It's not directed entirely at you, but can you actually make money playing Baroque music. I think that's sort of been my hang-up. Yeah, I usually make more. What? (laughs) I'm going to give me a Baroque bow. What am I doing? Well, not just with the Baroque bow, though, Michael. Come on, get it together. (laughs) (laughs) You need the whole setup because we do play at 415. And and actually, there's like an art to treating your gut strings 
appropriately and you have to tie them and there's kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of a process i love it it's, it's a, a little whole bit cathartic deal. you soak your you like you soak your e-strings in olive oil and, them out, and you tie them and then you burn the end seriously it's involved. do you like do you like kill the cat first and then like, eh. optional you know eh. leave it to your own imagination take them live <laughs> no but um I'm obviously in a part of the world where, first of all, I think there's a revival of early music Uh um, and historical performance practice. But I think, you know, if you're in New York, there are certain pockets. There's like Cleveland and now the West Coast and obviously Europe. It's always been popular. Yeah. So you definitely need to live in the right part of the country or the world. But I think overall, it's more widely accepted as a potential career. And I don't know that I could solely make it on that alone, but I'm in a place where I'm not making it on my own anyway. Right. Because (laughs) this ties into my story. Don't worry. The last year being in DC, I had a a really awful flare of this autoimmune disease. Uh I was sick and hospitalized a couple of times and had a really rough year. And I'd say there was at least a year where I didn't play at all. I just remember it being like April or May and being very sick and having one gig that I had to get through and then not playing at all. Yeah. Until, I mean, like there was maybe, there were maybe like one or two performances that I had had on the books for many months and was determined to do and barely made it through. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that's something that maybe someone listening can relate to as well, because having to take time off, whether or not it's for like uh, tendonitis, which I also experienced in grad school, and that's pretty rough, or if it's for some other physical condition or outside issue, is it's really hard to not play for so long to be the ultimate version of Rusty and then (laughs) have to try to get out of that. Dust it off. And get out of it sometimes without performances to look forward to. There were moments where I would have one, and if I was starting to feel better, like I'd be like, okay, got to practice this week. Got to make it happen. But it's hard. Was it the external motivation, though, that was still driving that? You knew you had a performance coming up, so you knew like you better get ready for it, or did you kind of you know, miss playing. Oh, I, I definitely miss playing. And when you're so physically weak, let's let you in, not to make you feel sorry for me, but just to give you perspective, I couldn't lift my leg to get into the bathtub. It was that bad. And so in those moments of complete weakness and just utter sickness, I really missed it because it was not physically possible to, to even pick my violin up and hold it. Wow. And then once I started to feel better, it still was like that physical exhaustion that I had to get over that hurdle and work up to playing. Yeah. And then, you know, as I as I got better and better, then it was just like your typical issues where you're like, eh, maybe I'll just lay on the couch instead. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I imagine like when you have to take a year off, the getting back in shape period is a little lengthier than you would like and you probably sound and everything feels weird. I would think like, I don't know, even for me, when you take a couple of weeks off, when you come back, like oh, yeah. it physically feels, uh, my fingers just feel so like fat icky and, and slow. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. you don't feel physically comfortable and then you don't like what you're hearing. I would think that would be a really difficult time to get through motivation wise because you're like, ugh, I sound like poop. I don't like it. You know what? You don't want to hear yourself. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that takes all of the discipline. Yeah, I strangely have this like if I take a while off when I come back, I when I first play I'm like, "Oh, I sound pretty good considering that I haven't played." And then I start like really listening to myself. I'm like, "No, this is really bad actually." Yeah. Don't really start listening cuz that's when things get tricky. I think it's crazy that all the terminology we use is so similar, if not identical to that. We use, you know, 
to talk about people who are who are out of shape or maybe overweight and want to get back into the gym, you know, oh, I feel yeah. out of shape or like, oh, it doesn't, you know, like that sort of thing. And it, it might take a while, but it really is like that. Like you have to really just have a strong image of how you want to sound. Just like you have to have a strong image of what you want to look like or, or you know, kind of your goal. You have to have that in mind and then work towards it and just mm-hmm. understand, you know, you're not going to be able to shed the 15 pounds or 20 pounds, whatever it is you want to lose in a, in a week, just like right. you're not going to be able to come from not playing a year to playing through all of Paganini's caprices in a week. Yep. That's absolutely, well, yeah, I can't do that anyway, but <laughs> you know, the, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I do know what you mean. Well, and that was injury fears of going from nothing to doing all of that. Like you have to do sure. it intelligently to avoid injury. So, yep, that's true. And it's, and there's probably nothing harder. I mean, the illness aside, just trying to get back after a year and being like, man, I sound like crap. <laughs> Will I ever be at the sound that I know that I'm capable of making again? Because you feel like mm-hmm. in those moments that it's actually not possible. And I had so many times where I was just like, maybe I'm just not going to do this anymore because it's too painful to accept oh, yeah. to accept myself as I am right now is the hardest thing. Um, so anyway, those are hard times. And if you gotta, you gotta love yourself before you can love somebody else. There was some sort of ramping uh, up to something inspirational. Yeah. Yeah. There's some inspirational Uh, something What is that? How does that go? Who is kind? I don't know. It just started talking and the words weren't there. I thought they they were going to come through. I don't know. <laughs> what uh, is that from? Smart and you from were important. Oh, that's been a long time. Um, <laughs> I think like to wrap up my general story, uh-huh. and we touched briefly on the fact that, you know, I'm married to a musician and that's really hard. And there are specific challenges that come with being in a partnership that um, has another musician in it. You know, at certain times, one of your careers is probably going to be more important than the other. And that's a tricky thing to yeah. step into. And Christian might have some ideas on that. But I think that overall, when you are having a hard time finding motivation in hoping to persist in your career or whatever, the most important question is, what is it that I'm actually committed to here? Hmm. I think asking yourself that on a regular basis is important because it could shift. At certain times, I'm committed to my marriage, um, whether or not it's your passion for music or making money Are you committed to the idea that you set forth for yourself when you were 16 or 18 or 22 or 28? You know, you have to constantly reassess the level of commitment and what is taking precedent in the current moment that you're in. Yeah, that's uh, I think there's that's so good because it would be great. I think if they all lined up at the same time, like if you're, you know, you and your spouse both, you know, had jobs in the same town and were making lots of money and I love playing violin, but like sometimes they don't all line up perfectly and you sort and you have to sometimes make a hard choice. And I think that there's something really deep about really asking, what is it that you're most committed to? Because uh, there's kind of a lot, I think it's sort of like there's a lot of, you know, you're juggling a lot of different balls and maybe they don't all uh, stay in the air at the same time. I'd hopefully a relationship one doesn't get dropped and all that. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. And actually, <laughs> Greg is the one. Sorry, that, I don't know why I found that so funny, but yeah, Greg is the one that actually posed this question to me when I was talking to him. He was like, you know, like, are you passionate about living in Europe? Is that conducive to the job that you're able to get? Or like, do you love the East Coast, but the job that you've been offered is in Minnesota? You know, like, 
just right. logistics. It's always logistics with being a musician. Logistics internally, externally. It's all about it. Logistics are hard enough for just one person. It's just me over here. And like, I sometimes cannot mm-hmm. get myself where I need to. Like, it's just hard. Like, it doesn't work out. So then when you have two people doing that, mm-hmm. it just sounds like a nightmare. Basically. And sometimes I'm sure it is. And sometimes maybe it's not as bad, but like. Yeah. And even man. it is tricky about being married to or just even dating a musician is because it's like if you want a symphony orchestra job, there's usually like one opening in the city every you know couple years or something whereas like if you were in marketing there might be a hundred jobs in a city and so there are also lots of other careers that are just as scarce so because actually my wife is a college professor and so there aren't college teaching jobs uh as freely as you know marketing or insurance jobs or something so we had to you know also similarly move to a new town uh for her job but that was, uh, you know, that was just one of the priorities and one of the things we were committed to doing. And it worked out so far. <laughs> so far, so good. Like Anna was saying, if you keep checking in with yourself and your spouse or whatever with that question, what are you committed to? It probably changes every once in a while. Absolutely, just yeah. as like how it changes for you personally. Like I would imagine like Anna, when you ask yourself now, what are you committed to specifically in terms of your music, that's probably really different now than when you were in college. Oh, for sure. So, yeah. you know, it's one of those things that probably evolves with our wisdom, but also just with life's <laughs> yeah. circumstances from time right. to time. And with being a part of a musician partnership too, I think it can look different and hopefully Christian can weigh yeah. in here too, because I'm sure he and Maria have a different looking situation than Greg and I do. And for me with Greg being in a quartet, I was signing up for not just a musical marriage, but but to be part of the situation where Greg is gone all of the time. And so I have to be motivated in different areas and know what I'm committed to specifically on my own, which honestly, I'm not very good at sometimes. And like, even now I'm, I don't have all the answers and this is like just starting to get figured out, I hope, but it's hard, you know, like, cause a lot of times as being part of a musical partnership, you are on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Maria and I just talked about it today. She plays oboe for any of you listening who don't know that. Yeah. And we just kind of decided that beginning in the fall, one of us, if not both of us will decide to go full gas for one year or maybe two more and do a a big round of auditions because we just kind of realized it's unfair for us to just kind of stay in our freelance comfort zones, you know, where everything is going fine and we're able to actually afford the lifestyle we like and it's comfortable, but we don't really know if it's going to be fulfilling long term. So we thought, you know, we should go ahead and and give this a try. So I've always had a little bit of a penchant for Scandinavia, specifically Norway. Oh. And uh, and I really want to look at all of the auditions there and, and give that a good go. You're pining for the fjords. Exactly. And, uh, P- and Pining for the Lexa. Goes, <laughs> you know, she we talked about it today. She goes, you know, then that might mean that we then for a season will have a long-term relationship again. Uh, not I mean long, long, distance. long distance, right? right. Long distance relationship. Right. Long term. Some like lost in translation there. <laughs> no, no, of course not. No, long distance relationship. Long and um, yeah, we'll see. You know, like um, that's not set in stone. But we realize, I think, what we are committed to as a couple is that we want to see each other blossom. We want to see each other 
reach what what they can reach. And yeah, we're gonna give it a go. So it's yeah. tricky, right? To be I mean, continued. Like, it yeah. Is tricky. yeah, it's tricky. Staying on that is there there is a weird sort of push and pull about being in a relationship is that of course you want the best for, you know, your significant other. You want them to do as well as they can and, you know, advance and, you know, see their dreams come come to fruition. And yet there's a lot of ego that has to, you know, get out of the way in order to really honestly put another person ahead of your own your own plans. So it's, it's definitely tough. I think, I mean, and that's not necessarily even probably music specific. I think there's a lot of, you know, make our own plans and do stuff, but in a relationship, there's a lot of give and take and I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) That's how, that's how all my rants end. They just end with like, uh, yeah, basically, I don't know. I've just kind of been talking and saying a lot of stuff and I I don't have it figured out. That's why we have, this podcast right <laughs> not, i mean like not solely but just you know like we don't yeah. have all the answers we're all in this together and yeah we hear from older people that it's gonna work itself out but we don't know what that means yet <laughs> just tonight this violinist in the orchestra i play in she asked how old i thought the soloist was and i said oh i read his like biography he was born in 78 so he's you know 38 now and um mm-hmm. yeah. And then she goes, oh, around the age. When, yeah, that's what she goes. She goes around the age when you start questioning and figuring out, you know, why you're here on this earth. And then she kind of turned around dramatically and began warming up. And like, <laughs> no, and I know that's so Amazing. like so kitschy, so cliche, whatever. Love it. But you know, we we shouldn't make light of people who are in that process and really asking themselves, am I able to accept myself? As a freelancer who doesn't have a full-time position in an orchestra, kudos to somebody who can love themselves when they're not in the position they had secretly or maybe not so secretly dreamt of. You know, I think that is more successful than somebody who's got a permanent position, but maybe it's still not where they wanted it to be and they're Mm -hmm. bitter. Like kudos to the person who can love themselves and accept themselves wherever they're at in their musical career. Because I think being there allows you to reach a certain artistic height that not everyone can reach. I don't know. So Mm -hmm. for me, you know, as cliche as it was, there was like a little bit of inspiration and encouragement in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I agree. That's that's, that's awesome. That's it, man. That's all of it. All right, guys. I've been Michael O'Giblin. I'm Anna Luce. I'm Jessica Wiersma. And I am Brobs. I mean, Christian Marshall. <laughs> nice. <laughs> One or the other. Same thing. It's really funny because the, right. the first episode is definitely was Well, that is our show, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully that left you with some things to ponder. Like, can you love yourself even if you're not where you thought you might be? Or what is it that's motivating me or keeping me going and pursuing my art form? And if I lost that form of motivation, would I keep going? We'll be back in two weeks with the final installment of this series with our in-depth interview of Jess. If you'd like to see all the points from our conversation today, including that YouTube link of that awesome Hilliard Ensemble recording of the Bach Chaconne with singing, uh, that's in the show notes. And uh, Anna mentioned it a few times, but her husband, Greg, is also a good friend of all of ours. And he's a viols in the Aeolus String Quartet, which is really incredible and winning all sorts of competitions and grants and residencies and all those other stuff that quartets win. But you should check them out too. They're in the show notes. 
You can find all that at www.perservice.co slash six, like the numbers and no spaces. That's P-E-R-S-E-R-V-I-C-E dot co slash six. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review in iTunes like this fabulous review from S.C. Smith. He or she writes, this is a charming, relevant, and meaningful podcast that is not just for musicians, but artists of all kinds. I am an actor, singer, dancer, and find the conversations wonderfully relevant, and I'm inspired by these musicians and their curiosity and passion. Oh, thanks, S.C. Smith. I think you're what they call a triple threat. We really appreciate you taking the time to write that. And for all the rest of you, please consider being as awesome as this dear listener and leave us a comment so that others can find our show. And don't forget, you can find us on Instagram under the handle per service podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Be well and practice well.